congregation and turn in Holy Scripture to the prophecy of Jonah. It's been some months since I was last in your midst, but we'll pick up where we've left off previously in the prophecy of Jonah, chapter, two, chapter 1, at the very end, starting at verse 17 and reading to the end of chapter 2. And this passage of Scripture functions as both our reading and our text, so we will read it just once, but as always, you're encouraged to have your Bibles open during the proclamation page 983 of your pew Bibles. And after we've read from God's Word, we will sing in response Psalm 119, and we'll sing stanzas 44 and 47 in preparation for receiving the gospel in the preaching. Jonah 1, 17 and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. From, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again, look upon your temp holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deeps surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Following the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing together Psalm 25, stanzas 3 and 4, and we'll do that standing. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
What makes for an ideal classroom atmosphere? What kinds of teaching aids, charts, maps, objects, etc. would be helpful to have around for the class? Well, the answer depends, of course, on what kind of subjects are being taught, the age level at which they're being taught, and for that matter, the kind of teacher responsible to lead the class. But teachers, especially in our elementary schools, is generally give a good amount of thought as to what kinds of things they're going to put in the room to help make an ideal classroom atmosphere for the children. Now, I am not a trained educator, but I know enough to say that 99.9% .9 of us would never want to learn a lesson or two in the belly of a fish. And yet that's exactly where the Lord sent Jonah and for that exact purpose. We can call the fish's belly a temporary classroom for Jonah. It would have been dark, wet, weedy, probably smelly. Hardly an ideal classroom atmosphere, you and I would say. But class is in session because Jonah is sorely in need of learning. The Lord, as we found earlier in chapter 1, has brought Jonah far, far down, down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the inner part of the ship, down into a deep sleep, and now down into the depths of the sea. That's how it goes with the child of God. When we run from God, our lives spiral downward. We think that sin will bring us satisfaction and safety, but it always leads to some form of death, both in our relationship with God and with others. And yet for the child of God, brothers and sisters, also that form of death is meant for good. Covenant children can go down into the pit, but that downward movement itself displays the good intent of God. He wants to humble his child and thereby teach him a certain lesson. Jonah, we've seen previously, Jonah had a real problem with God's love and grace. He didn't get it. He didn't really understand what it was all about and Israel along with him. And so the Lord brought his prophet very low to provide Jonah with the right setting for him to learn something about himself and about his God. God wanted to show Jonah the very thing that Jonah had been stubbornly refusing to see and rejoice over, the unparalleled reach of God's grace. But does the lesson have its intended effect on Jonah? Does Jonah get the point in that dark, wet, weedy classroom? What does God's great display of grace in his life uncover in his heart? And really, is the lesson that God was teaching Jonah all that different from the lesson God longs for us to learn today as well.
and yet one which we are so strikingly slow to learn. I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. In the belly of, the, the, of Sheol, the Lord schools his prodigal prophet on divine grace. So in the belly of Sheol, the Lord schools his prodigal prophet on divine grace. See the reach of God's grace, and then secondly, the resistance to his grace. So chapter one, verse 17, the beginning of our text, introduces the most famous aspect of the book, that a great fish swallowed the prophet. This has attracted an abundant amount of, of attention over the centuries. People wonder whether this is a miracle or myth. Those wanting to prove it's a miracle try to document accounts of fish swallowing men who yet live to tell the tale. But if there are all sorts of these instances, then what is described here is really not so much a miracle as it's just one of those odd events that sometimes happens. And I would hasten to add, too much concentration on the great fish can distract from examining what actually happened on Jonah's remarkable subterranean voyage. To kick things off, we first pay attention to the prominent feature of the sovereignty of God. This text is framed by demonstrations of the Lord's sovereignty over nature. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God commissioned the fish to take care of his prodigal prophet. He wonderfully stationed this great fish at exactly the right place in the ocean, at the exactly the right time to pick up its reluctant passenger. And so the question of whether a fish could under normal circumstances provide a safe habitat for a man for three days is really beside the point. For even if such a fish could do that, the chances of the fish being handy in the Mediterranean at the right time are slim to none. It's a miracle, that's the point. The Lord sovereignly provided this unique agent for Jonah's rescue because there is no place in creation where God's sovereignty, God's arm is limited. And then at the end of the passage, the fish obeys God again. After three days and three nights, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The fish obeys every time. In contrast to the stubborn disobedience of the one it was sent to save. But that itself, beloved, is also quite noteworthy. God is sovereign not just over nature, but even the disobedience of Jonah. When Jonah's thrown overboard, he's got nothing to expect in those churning waters except death by drowning. Indeed, we suggested actually last time that this may very well have been his heart's desire. If I die, I won't have to go preach to Nineveh. But to his surprise, he's swallowed by a great fish. Jonah cannot duck the sovereignty of God. 
It's very remarkable. What Jonah least wanted and what the pagan sailors most wanted but couldn't achieve, the Lord accomplishes so easily, bringing Jonah back to dry land. Even Jonah's covenant disobedience can't throw a wrench in God's sovereign plan. And God's sovereign plan is to show his sovereign grace to Jonah, to give him a second chance. Whoever heard of someone being swallowed by a fish and surviving? In the Bible, water is a very threatening and very dangerous element. We think of the great flood where the sea displayed its power to judge, swallow, and destroy. Think of Israel making its way across the Red Sea. You could just imagine that as they walked on the sea floor, they may have been looking to the right or to the left at those huge walls of water, wondering if they were walking into what would be their watery grave. And think of the crossing of the Jordan River. There too, water is perilous. Waters are the power of death and drowning. He who is plunged into them is plunged into death and the grave. Sheol, the dark home of the dead, which in the New Testament sometimes comes to be translated as hell. So do you see where Jonah's heading? He's thrown overboard and he's headed for hell, away from the presence of the Lord that is, which is where he's been trying to get from the start. Recall at the very beginning of Jonah 1 that we are told twice that Jonah had been looking to flee from the presence of the Lord. And now it looks as if the Lord is giving him what he asked for. You wanna flee from my presence? All right, I'll bring you to Sheol, to hell. But this is where the surprise of God's sovereign grace comes. Even there, even in the depths of the earth, in that watery grave of Sheol, even there, God is sovereign to save. Why did God save Jonah? besides the fact that he wants him to still go to Nineveh. Very simply, to give him a life lesson about grace. There is no limit to the reach of God's grace and nobody deserves that grace, least of all the messenger of grace himself on the way to Sheol. It is God showing his goodness to guilty sinners who deserve only severe justice and have no reason to expect anything but severe justice. The belly of the fish was Jonah's lecture hall and the three-day course is God's undeserved mercy, Grace 101. Jonah, you wanted to limit my grace by refusing to go to outsiders. You wanted to get beyond the reach of my presence and my power. But I want you to see and acknowledge, Jonah, in your own life, in your own experience, in dealing with your own sin, that there is no limit to my grace. 
My grace reaches all the way to the realm of the dead. Now, this whole picture, brothers and sisters, should be very encouraging to us. Do you ever think, for example, that you've messed up the Lord's plan for your life? You've made sinful choices that have taken you to a difficult place. You view yourself as in a pit. Perhaps it's even stronger than that, that you've given yourself over to your sin and you are effectively running as hard as you can away from God. Or maybe you've tried to do what is right, but you're frustrated because circumstances have seemed to conspire against you and the storms of life have invaded. Well, the book of Jonah shows us that God is sovereign over that as well. We need to notice that there is nothing in our lives, no corner, no crisis, beyond the reach of God. He's always pursuing our hearts. And sometimes that means turning you over to your sin and letting you run. At other times it means surrounding you with frustrating circumstances. But in the midst of it all, as far as the Lord's purpose is concerned, you're always in the right place at the right time. He will even use your sins and your trials to bring about good fruit in your life. So his grace finds you even in those places where you thought to hide from his presence. You're never beyond the reach of your God. Jonah needed to learn that God is at work to save, or already before those fleeing from him are aware, and he can reach down as far as Sheol itself to do his saving work. Jonah needed to see and to grasp the extent of God's grace to make him a better servant of the Lord, a bona fide preacher of grace to lost sinners. The question is, does Jonah get it? What does our text say? Well, that we see in the second place, we see the resistance to God's grace. Well, Jonah, who so far has been pretty silent, is suddenly all talk. Here he opens up, he gives us a glimpse into his thinking. And when he opens up, it's to pray to God which is a first for Jonah in the book. He didn't pray when, we, when he fled to Joppa, or when he boarded the ship, or when even the captain of the ship begged him to. So this suggests that Jonah is already being changed by this experience of being brought very low. His prayer takes the form of a psalm of thanksgiving. Such a psalm was often used in Israel to recount a crisis and the deliverance from that crisis and to thank the Lord for the deliverance. And therefore, many read this psalm as evidence of a transformation in Jonah. He sees the error of his ways and now recognizes that the Lord alone is sovereign over salvation. This is a repentant prophet. I'm not so optimistic. 
there's certainly a change. He's now praying to be delivered, and that prayer expresses this longing to be in God's presence again, which was what he was fleeing from up to that point. But as the second half of the story unfolds in chapters three and four, it's abundantly clear that Jonah's attitude to the Ninevites hasn't changed at all. And his prayer shows us why. Jonah, although in dire straits because of his profound disobedience, doesn't recognize his sin. And so he utters not a word of confession. Oh, he's absolutely clear about the sovereignty of God in his situation, and that's good. But by the end of his prayer, the prophet has yet to repent in any way. There's no acknowledgement of his sinful actions like the language of David in Psalm 32 after his sin with Bathsheba. No, Jonah is grateful that the Lord has rescued him, but he doesn't recognize his own fault in all of this. So let's be conscious of that as this psalm unfolds before us. The first part offers a brief summary of Jonah's trouble and the Lord's deliverance. Verse two, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Sheol is the dark place of silence where those who rebel against God deserve to end up for judgment. Jonah was not just in Sheol, but in the belly of Sheol, it says. He saw himself as virtually dead in the deepest part of that dismal dungeon. But even there, as we've said, the Lord found him and rescued him. And then Jonah offers up what seems to be quite an orthodox confession of God's sovereignty. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, not just the sailors, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. These were God's means of judgment and not just random circumstances. Verse four, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. But to say this is really to say much too little. If this were anything close to a prayer of repentance, it would have been far more accurate for Jonah to speak in the active sense. I have fled from your sight. That's what he did. But here there is no admitting his own responsibility for his brush with death. Instead, the way he talks almost makes him sound like an innocent bystander and that it's really God who's responsible for Jonah's distress. Then he proceeds to drop altogether the connection between the Lord and the threatening waters. Verse five, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The sea takes him by the throat and casts him down. Before long, as he says, weeds were wrapped around my head. 
These images, of course, clearly illustrate for us the life-threatening aspect of his time in the sea. His chances of escape are reduced even further by the depth of his descent. At the roots of the mountains, verse 6, I went down into the land, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Far from the Lord, Jonah sees nothing but death. Life and light were gone from him forever. And then we hear about his amazing, unexpected deliverance. At the lowest and most hopeless of all possible points, God rescues him. Jonah's demise has been averted, and he has only God to thank for it, which he does, but he's shockingly brief. You brought my life up, up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It's striking that the one who is praying for deliverance is really more prominent in the prayer than God the deliverer, as if it were his prayer that had a key role in his deliverance. It's not like the Psalms, which are very much God-centered. One example, Psalm 116 is a psalm praising God for deliverance from the cords of death. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Others dwell on God and his details. Jonah dwells on Jonah and his details. He's grateful for deliverance yet he's not repentant for running away from his commission. We get really zero indication that his heart has changed. And this is, I would say, the most evident at the end of the psalm, <clears throat> in verses eight and nine. There is almost this smugness about him. He talks about those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of covenant love. And he contrasts them with himself when he says in verse 9, literally, but as for me, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Who pay regard to worthless idols? Jonah is thinking about the pagan sailors, about the Ninevites, about people who have no covenantal claim to the Lord's steadfast love. Jonah sees himself as a faithful worshiper who enjoys the Lord's covenant faithfulness, while those who worship false gods have no hope of experiencing this. And so his final words, salvation belongs to the Lord, are words not well understood by Jonah. Since salvation is the Lord's, it, can, it is something that can come to pagan idolaters, 
turning them into God-fearers just as easily as it can come to runaway prophets. But no, Jonah is better than they. I'm gonna go to the temple and sacrifice. Jonah's heart isn't in the right place. He knows his scriptures, you could say, but he didn't know his God. And so, it's little wonder that at the end of this psalm, the great fish vomited him out onto the dry ground. That's an interesting word, isn't it? It's typically used of vomiting when you've eaten and drunk too much, but it's also used in Leviticus, for example, to describe the promised land expelling its inhabitants into exile because of their sin. Well, here too, the vomiting suggests that the fish has had quite enough of Jonah. The fish is literally quite sick to his stomach of Jonah and his false piety, and therefore vomits him out. Jonah may have been redeemed and delivered from death, but he thinks so little of the grace that saved him. And so he thinks little of fellow sinners, thinks of them as idol worshipers who don't deserve a thing from the Lord, unlike prophets like him who deserve God's grace even when they mess up. And yet in spite of his self-righteousness and his confusion, the Lord still delivers Jonah from the pit. How great God's grace in the face of Jonah's resistance toward learning the lesson. Well, is it possible, congregation, that our behavior is often not all that far off from Jonah's? Absolutely. We can have great theology, but not live up to it. Jonah is absolutely right when he says salvation belongs to the Lord and when he recognizes that it's the Lord who cast him into the sea. Jonah nails it when he says that idolaters don't deserve God's steadfast love and yet he can't bring that great theology to bear on his own heart. He's confused about election. He thought that being part of God's chosen people was a matter of ethnicity and outward conformity and not really heart submission to God. As long as he continued to say the right things and offer the right sacrifices to fulfill his vows, then he deserved God's faithfulness. In other words, election divided the world into insiders and outsiders. God's steadfast love, his faithfulness to his covenant commitments that belongs only to insiders. And as long as they stay, steer clear of really big sins like idolatry, insiders could mess up and still look to the Lord for help. But outsiders Salvation belongs to the Lord, but the Lord belongs to his people, not to outsiders. And so long as Jonah maintained his theological orthodoxy, he couldn't possibly be a great sinner. 
we so often do exactly the same. We divide the world into insiders and outsiders, those who deserve God's grace and those who don't. We can be proud of our Reformed theology and thus think that we deserve God's favor because we've sorted it all out, while others are outsiders. But in this process, we become idolaters. We idolize election, idolize grace, idolize the covenant in the way that we can treat these things as if they were our own property and yet be totally unwilling to really follow the Lord from the heart. Let's push this a little bit further. Confessional pride. We can be so proud of our confessional formulations. We can love doctrine, but maybe fail to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God and with others. It is possible and rather easy to think I'm okay because I believe the right things, I read the right books, I go to the right church, I sing the right kind of music, and I send my children to the right kind of schools. But that can all be a cover-up for a very low understanding of God's grace. The shocking thing we learn from Jonah's song is in our hearts we can turn our church, our membership, our covenant connection to God even into idols, preventing us from cherishing his grace that he gives freely to all kinds of sinners, even us. Grasping this, is what transforms our prayers. What role does confession of sin play in your prayers? That's a key indicator of the extent to which you view yourself as an insider to grace. Might I have to admit that I view myself to a large extent as such a natural insider? There's very little confession of sin in my prayers. Instead, I expect God to help me because I'm part of his people. I can identify other people's sins clearly enough, but my own sin so often remains hidden from me, cunningly concealed behind my love for doctrine, order, and really love for myself. I don't really see my sin as all that bad. And so I don't really see God's grace towards me as all that amazing either. What's the answer to our problem? Well, it's found in that glorious statement Jonah uttered but didn't really grasp. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign over our salvation from beginning to end. And that means it's not something I inherit simply by being born into a Christian family. If I am God's, it's because he chose me. Otherwise, salvation would belong to me. But it's the Lord's and the Lord's alone. 
And that means it's also the Lord's steadfast love that sovereignly keeps us safe to the end. Even when outwardly we conform to his law, our hearts are often motivated by sinful pride, by a desire to please others, to look good before others. And yet in spite of our idolatry and our slowness to cherish his grace, his steadfast love remains equally sure, enduring forever. Your salvation belongs to the Lord from beginning to end. But how can it be that the Lord would show such covenant steadfast faithfulness to people like us? The answer is found in the one to whom Jonah points. How did the Son of God love sinners? He loved them from the heart. He welcomed in the despised and the outcast. He reached out to the woman of Samaria who was part of an idolatrous people and who herself had a shady history. But since salvation belongs to the Lord, he could give it to her. And so he could also reach out to despise tax collectors and prostitutes. For he was obedient. But the pathway of obedience through which outsiders would come in meant for Jesus a profound separation from the Father for our sins. Christ went to the belly of the earth, past the gates of hell into hell itself, driven away from the Father's presence into utter darkness. He actually felt the full measure of God's hellish torment. That was his baptism by judgment or of judgment. It immersed him and dragged him down into its deepest depths where all of our self-righteousness and pride and idolatry, all of our rejection of those who are unlike us was all laid upon him. And the Father did not reach down and deliver the life of his beloved son from the pit. When the son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father did not appoint some beast to come and rescue him. Instead, he turned out the lights. But Christ experienced all this in order that his place of death would become our place of deliverance. His death became our place of undeserved mercy. The cross, like the belly of the fish, is good news. And he didn't stay there. For the Lord would not abandon the soul of his Holy One in Sheol. Up from the grave he arose on the third day as well. The earth didn't vomit him out. Death couldn't, simply couldn't hold him back because he was innocent of sin and the sovereign one himself. And so he triumphed once for all over sin, death, and hell on behalf of all his people to finish off his work of redemption. 
And so now, brothers and sisters, because of his unmerited kindness and faithfulness in dying for you, you receive full and free salvation that belongs to the Lord. God's steadfast love is yours because of Christ. And that gives great assurance for your salvation. And that should also prepare you to love and welcome other great sinners into the family of God. If you've learned to see yourself as a great sinner, how can you look down on anybody else? We are all idolaters. We have all forfeited our rights to the Lord's steadfast love, and yet we all receive it nonetheless for the sake of Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord, which means that he can save anyone even self-righteous people like us who are so slow to get his lesson about his grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so cherish his grace. It's far more than we can comprehend, and it's infinitely more than we deserve. Amen.